to conclude his distinguished career, legendary Australian herbalist Dennis Stewart will present his final course, a professional extension in herbal medicine. Commencing on the 23rd of November 2019, this 12-day intensive course will be held over a period of 12 months on the New South Wales Central Coast. This will be your last opportunity to participate in detailed learning with Dennis, covering relevant, effective herbal prescriptions to treat an expansive range of conditions. For more information and to register, please go to lakespa.com.au. FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. Joining us on the line again today is Jules Galloway, who's a passionate naturopath, speaker and podcaster. Diagnosed with pyrrole disorder, chronic stress and fatigue and a couple of pesky gene mutations thrown in for good measure, Jules has learned the importance of nourishing herself using whole foods, supplements, happiness, gratitude and a good dose of humour. With over 12 years of clinical experience, Jules has made it her mission to help women recover from fatigue and burnout. She's guided thousands of women back to health through her e-courses, e-books, podcasts and her blog. And she's also the founder of a brand new apothecary in Byron Bay. Jules has a special interest in recovering from burnout, gut issues and pyrrole disorder. And it's pyrroles indeed that we're discussing today. Welcome back to FX Medicine, Jules. How are you? Oh, good, thank you. Thank you so much for having me back again. Now, as I said, we're discussing pyrroles, but from a clinician and a patient perspective today, because as you say, you're quite open about it, you've been diagnosed with pyrroles. So what is pyrrole disorder from the science perspective and also how does it affect you as a patient? So as a patient, uh, it's affected me greatly and that ended up leading to me learning about it from a science perspective. But from a science perspective, it's really so simply that uh, it's simply that a person is making way more of this particular substance called pyrroles than other people when people are stressed or traumatised or exposed to oxidative damage or pollution or um, if they have leaky gut, they, you know, if they've got this genetic predisposition, then, you know, they are more likely to make elevated amounts of these pyrroles. And that's where you run into problems because uh, it ends up depleting your body in B6 and zinc and a few other little trace elements. Uh, but from a patient perspective, it was really interesting because I've lived with this all my life, but I had no idea what was really going on. I knew I had niggly little health issues. When I was really little, I got every cold and flu and problem that came along. I had leaky gut and food intolerances and gut issues. Um, I experienced a lot of trauma myself as a child. So I went through a lot of stuff because of that. So I had, you know, a stint of having anxiety and depression. And I've also had a lot of hormonal issues, et cetera. So I've had all these different things going on that, you know, I, I, I'm glad that it happened because it's it's what led me to become a naturopath because when you've got all those things going on in your life and the medical system isn't offering you answers, uh, sometimes it shunts you down that path of 
looking for an alternative and and that's great because it's it's led to this amazing career and this passion that I have yeah. uh but yeah, basically, in a nutshell, what happened is that as soon as I found out I had pyrrole disorder a few years ago, I stupidly, some would say, wrote a blog post about it. And that blog post um, gained a lot of attention. And of course, then the people who read the blog post assumed that I was the one to help them <laughs> with their pyrrole disorder. And they started booking in. And I was like, oh, my God, I haven't even sorted it out in myself yet. I'd better hop to it and learn what is really going on. So I was like just head down, bum up, you know, devouring every bit of information that I could and every bit of training that I could, whilst also experimenting on myself, of course, because that is clinicians, that's what we love to do. Um, and the people kept coming. <laughs> the patients kept coming. So I, I received, you know, I got mentoring. I was yeah, devouring every bit of research that came my way in, you know, in the hope that I could get on top of this because it seemed, uh, this is a few years ago as well, it seemed that there are a lot of people out there who had pyrrole disorder who were looking for answers who hadn't managed to get their treatment dialed in yet in terms of knowing the right supplements and the right diet and the right combination of everything. Uh, and there didn't at that time seem to be a huge amount of experienced practitioners out there who had seen a lot of these cases. I think now that's changing a lot. So, mm, mm. yeah, I, I had to learn it all very early on. Uh, and they do, they often say that like attracts like. So, of course, I'd been attracting people who had pyrrole disorder to my practice because I do believe that a lot of the time you're attracting clients that are reflecting something in you that you've either healed or need to heal. I like to take the stand to the skeptic. You know, like if somebody had anxiety issues and constipation or, or gut issues or bloating, you know, the old style practitioner would say, well, you know, there's IBS, there's hormonal dysregulation, there's, you know, some anxiety and depression and, you know, that's because of some experience and things like that. So um, I'm reminded by what Mark Donahue taught me and that is, you know, if you hear hooves, think horses, not zebras. But I remember making the salient point to him, except if you're in Africa, <laughs> because <laughs> cause then there's a damn good chance they're zebras. So, so, and it's this, maybe, and maybe the zebras, the pyrrole zebras, are all where I live <laughs> well, in Byron right. Bay. I, I literally had a conversation um, with a. It was actually a friend of mine uh, when I was doing roller derby back in my very brief roller derby stint. Shall mm -hmm. we say before before I realised that roller derby causes you to break and that pyrrole disorder causes you to break <laughs> more easily. Um, but yes, one of my roller derby friends. I was sitting with her one night and we were talking about how my two closest friends found out they had pyrrole disorder and how she had friends who had pyrrole disorder and I was suddenly attracting all these clients in Byron Bay who had pyrrole disorder and I said, what is with Byron Bay and pyrrole disorder? And she said, this is where the pyrrole people come to heal. <laughs> ah, now I am reminded there by something Rachel Arthur said in a blog and she said, I recant, I recant. When she learnt, she sort of accepted pyrrole disorder. And it's something that I, like I, I still battle with it. I'm not there yet. So take us through, everybody has pyrroles or most people have pyrroles, but when does it become a disorder? It becomes a disorder when your body is creating them in large enough amounts that they're starting to deplete your zinc and your B6. So 
And there is, there's a lot of information coming out right now and a lot of research and a lot of discussion and discussion is mm. really good. Mm. Um, and, and yeah, there's, there's a lot of skepticism and I welcome that because I, I think we don't know everything there is to know about this by a long shot yet. Uh, we Like, for example, we know that it runs in families, but we can't figure out which gene is involved. So there's still so much yet to know. But there's a lot of, you know, just, just to preface what I'm about to say as well, but uh, there's a there's a lot of uh, interest in getting the terminology right at the moment as well. So we yes. we're referring to it as pyroles, pyrol pyroles everywhere, you know, and people are calling pyrol disorder pyroles instead of its correct term, which is either pyrol disorder or pyrouria, which is like, oh yeah, that person's got pyrol. Yeah. Uh, but actually, there are more technical and more correct terms for it, just in the way that we used to call it adrenal fatigue, and now we call it HPA axis dysfunction. You got it. Um, so just just so that you know everyone out there knows, yes, there are more correct terms. Um, there's a term called hydroxyhemopyrrolin slash two slash one or HPL, and I'm not I'm not only going to say that once today. Um, <laughs> and um, and you know that that's replacing the old term of cryptopyrrol, yes. which is like the other. So yeah, so you know we I needed to preface it with that because when we're saying. At what point does it come? Does it become pyrrole disorder? That's up for contention as well. But it does come back to that cryptopyrrole or HPL okay. test yeah. and the reference ranges in that test. So basically, if a person is making too much of this substance, it's going to show up on a urine test. But the reference range of that urine test is a massive point of discussion at the moment. It used to be zero to 10 was the reference range. Then they were like, ah, you know, if it's over 10 and less than 15 or 20, you should be calling it borderline pyrrol disorder. And I was like, okay, yeah, cool. And then it became a oh, actually, we think that maybe the reference range should be 0 to 20, and that seems to be what's widely accepted in functional medicine at the moment as either borderline pyrrole disorder in some people's books or actual pyrrole disorder. And then the other day I saw a test that came back from a lab that I don't normally use because a client came to me already with this test from a different naturopath, and that that test had a reference range of 0 to 40. So, Hmm. She had a she had a reading, I think it was like 28 or something like that, and she said, my naturopath told me a long time ago that I don't have pyrrol disorder, and I'm like, well, in my book you do. And and so there's, there's a lot of discussion about there as to exactly at what point do we call it pyrrol disorder, and at the moment it's the goalposts keep shifting. So for me, it comes back to good old, you know, naturopathic 101 from the 90s, you know, or earlier, where you go, does this person have the symptoms of pyrrole disorder? And if so, proceed and then test. And then if they're, even if they're in that borderline range, but they, you believe they've got a lot of the symptoms of pyrrole disorder, Move on to the follow-up testing. For me, it's not about the label we put on this condition, if you want to call it a condition. Um, it's, it's not about the label that we put on this. It's about how it's affecting the body. So with my clients, I often quickly gloss over, you know, what we're going to call it. Is it borderline? Is it pyrrole disorder? Blah, blah, blah. And we move on to like, what's your zinc doing? What's your copper doing? What's What are your other... 
um, markers doing around that copper? What's your ceruloplasmin doing? What's your free copper score? Uh, because we quickly need to move on and see how is this pyrrole disorder affecting the human? And we tend to forget about that when we get lost in labs. Yes, yeah, especially if those reference ranges are so hotly debated and the goalposts are moving. Like, you know, does that does that mean if you see a lab that says the person's fine, is the person sitting in front of you fine? If they've got symptoms that you think are pyrrole disorder symptoms, forget the labs and go and start testing their copper. I've had people who've come back negative for pyrrole disorder on a test who still had all the copper symptoms. Right. Okay. So when you're talking about copper symptoms and things like that, can you go through those for us? Sure. So again, just to take a quick little backtrack here, uh, with pyrroles, you don't, or with pyrrol disorder, you don't just have high copper issues, but you've got your low zinc and your low B6 issues. So there is some crossover between that in that some of the symptoms of low zinc and some of the symptoms of low B6 can also look the same as some of the symptoms of high copper. Uh, For example, like hormonal issues when you've got low B6 can look very similar to the estrogen dominance issues that you can quite often see with high copper. Just so you know, you need to look at all of those things at once. But okay, high copper. So high copper, I always think of those people who, it's, it's almost like any heavy metal toxicity on the brain type picture. So I often see similar things in people with other heavy metal issues. Uh, There's a lot of neurological stuff. There's a lot of mental health stuff. So we're looking at adults who are quick to anger, like people who have real mood instability, like their moods change at the drop of a hat. They go from zero to very angry very quickly and and often they will say, I, I it was for no good reason, like I don't know why I lost it like that and I'm really embarrassed about how I lost it like that. Uh, you often see uh, things like shyness and introversion in a person who not necessarily fits that picture but, you know, that real social anxiety uh, where uh, people go to a party and be uh, oversensitive to things like bright lights or noise. So overwhelm is really big. People who are sensitive to stress is really big. Uh, often you'll see, uh, I think I mentioned female hormone imbalances already. Copper loves estrogen. So copper copper can do a lot of things. Uh, also in children, you often see a lot of behavioral issues. So a lot of my high copper uh, kids are very shy or fearful or anxious or have you know having trouble at school or having anger issues at home and again that real copper picture is that very quick to anger kids who have meltdowns oh my god like think pyrols if they and and often it's not it's not even a, a very obvious anxiety picture. I know before we hit record today, we were joking about how people don't fit the textbook. Mm. And I think with copper toxicity, and especially in kids, they don't always fit that anxiety that you were taught in the textbook at uni. Uh, Like I had one child the other day who only loses it when they're around one specific person in the family, but not everybody or your one specific group of people in the family, but not at school. And and I, I eventually said, look, I, I think they're anxious. And it's like, no, 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 they're fine at school. Yeah, but they were holding it together at school 
and having the meltdowns when they got home. So copper can affect people in different ways, but always think like that sensitive person, think anxiety, think depression, and think that real instability around sort of that quick to lose it. That's your copper person. Could that also be a, a safety thing with the child? How either how safe they feel, you know, with that person that they lose it around? Absolutely, absolutely. I've seen it in a, in a few uh, a few of my patients and and my patients' kids because sometimes I don't see the kids. It's funny because I do a lot of Skype consults or I have done traditionally. Now I have a bricks and mortar business and the kids are coming. Um, but the traditionally I was always doing Skype and I didn't ever see children via Skype. I had a no kids via Skype policy and still do have because yeah. I think it's too difficult. But I would see the mums because the mums have got pyrrole disorder. So, of course, the mums are coming to me for burnout uh, because I do, you know, I do a lot of marketing around burned out mums. But then in the conversation, when you're taking the case with the mum, when you're asking about the family history, I would figure out that the kids sound really pyroly. And so quite often the mums would say, I, I pick them up from school and they lose it as soon as they get home. And it is, it's that that anxiety that where they hold it together at school and they know that it's not safe to lose it in that environment. But as soon as they get home to that safe place, it just all comes out. Um, and quite often you'll also then see sleep problems with the kids as well where they're waking in the night or having trouble getting to sleep uh, because they're anxious and they can't settle. Right. Uh, how often would you use, you know, orthodox assessments like, for instance, you know, the Hamilton Rating Scale for Anxiety, the HAM-A or the DAS? And how often would you instigate treatments like mindfulness, CBD, dialectical behaviour therapy, so what is it, DBT, you know, how, how often would you use these as opposed to you've got pyroles, we need to address the pyroles with nutrients? <laughs> Honestly, I'm not using those tools you mentioned as often as I guess a lot of people think I should. Right. Uh, I, I have a much more simplified version of that. Yeah. And sometimes in the conversation with, with the client, it's as simple as tell me what your anxiety is out of 10 gotcha, at right. the moment and, and what was it last time. Okay, last time it was 8 out of 10. Now it's 2 out of 10. How many panic attacks have you had? When were they? And, and sometimes for me that's all I need to know uh, because I feel like there's so much to get through in a consult that if I get caught up in some of those systems, it just eats into our time together as well. So okay. it really depends. If a person has really got some mental health issues and there is a, you know, there is something going on there with either anxiety or depression, I definitely refer them to someone who I can work alongside. I try and get them working with either their doctor or a psychologist or someone who can support that part of, of, of oh, their recovery. I see where you're um, going. Yep. Rather than try and take it all on myself. Yeah, so I, I'm busy working from a functional medicine perspective with working through some of the supplements and the symptoms and all the different systems of the body. I feel like I need I need someone else to outsource that that support to sometimes because I you know I, I can't do everything in that in that one hour or forty five minutes or whatever your time is with the patient. 
I hear you and I bow to you. Well done. <laughs> <laughs> but it, but but it is like it. Uh, I'm I'm pretty big on the point about interreferral and, and appropriate referral, and you've just exactly said that. But you know, I, I I have absolutely no problem with saying to a person, "Why don't you go and see the doctor and get that medication that we you gotcha. know that they have suggested?" And I will work in with that medication and give you things that. That still if someone's on an antidepressant, you can still sort out their zinc and their B six, and you can help them detoxify their copper. And there's all you can still do all that stuff mm. in the background, whether they're on those meds or not. Same with anti anxiety meds. Like there's as long as you check all your drug herb supplement interactions, there's so much you can do in a supportive way to improve the person's biochemistry, whether they're on the drugs or not. And and if at any time I think they're at a point where it's outside my scope of practice, then I'm 100% saying to them, go and talk to the doctor, see what they have to offer. Maybe it's time you took them up on that offer. It's not, it doesn't have to be forever, but this is to get you through a time in your life where you're feeling very challenged yeah. and that's okay. Okay, so you are mentioning about you know zinc and copper. We know the issues with testing or assessment of zinc. You know, and and it sort of vacillates between serum and red red blood cell, isn't it? Or is that right? Um, yeah, but what and about a lot of labs still aren't doing red blood cells, so yeah, you work with what you've got. And then there's the load tests and the sweat test. If you're in a lab, <laughs> you know, nobody can do the sweat <laughs> test. But um, but what about things that are readily available for a copper assessment, like ceruloplasmin? And indeed, and I, I forgive my ignorance here, but. Um, do you ever use like hollow transcobalamin as a test or is that just not, not something that you consider assessing? Sometimes when people come to me, they're on a budget as well. So, again, we have to work in with what they can do and, and what the labs will do. Um, but, no, I'm, I don't commonly do hollow transcobalamin. I, I'm still in that, uh, call me old-fashioned, but I'm doing uh, copper, ceruloplasmin, getting the free copper ratio, looking at serum zinc, unless the person has got the money to look at other yeah. options. Yeah. I found it to be perfectly fine for nearly everyone except just a couple of really curly cases. Uh, because remember, we shouldn't just be relying on labs. Like, have a look at their nails. Mm. And if they're a <laughs> Skype consult... Get them to send you a photo of their nails. Like sometimes, in you know, as much as I love functional medicine, as much as I love all the new testing, and you know, when when some of those tests you mentioned become mainstream and and more affordable, like bring it on. But sometimes, you know, in all of this testing and all of this science, we forget to just simply look at the person's nails for white spots. Mm. You're talking about zinc, right? Mm. Mm. Yeah. So we know that as an assessment sign in naturopathy. I cannot find any evidence for this. And yet I know that I've treated people with zinc and those zinc spots, have, those white spots have gone away. And you can become expert in, a, in sort of looking how long ago some stressor happened when that, you know, where the zinc spot occurs on the nail as it grows out from the cuticle. Yeah, what is it, three, mo three months before it appears. So if it's appearing at the base of the nail, that's three months old. All right, okay, there you go. So, so talking about that sort of, you know, treatment with zinc and, and B6, 
you know, how much zinc do you give? Is it just as simple as giving, you know, between 50 and 75 milligrams of zinc noctay and, and maybe, you know, 100 to 200 milligrams of zinc per day? Some people absorb zinc at different ratios as well. So are you looking at how much to give just across the board or are you going to look at the person's absorption first and how they react to it? I, I've really... When I started seeing a lot of patients with pyrrole disorder, I was very gung-ho about this is how much zinc you all need to have. Mm. This is how much B6 you all need to have. Yeah. And here's your B6 and here's your P5P and here's your blah, blah, blah. And this is what the latest research says. One thing for everyone. And then I realized it doesn't work like that. Uh, I've seen people, and it's not serum zinc. I think I said serum before. I think it's plasma zinc that yeah, I've been yeah. doing. Um, but yeah, it, you know, I've seen people zinc on blood tests just does not budge, even though you're giving them the top top amount of zinc available. And then we switch to putting them through a compounding pharmacy and getting transdermal zinc cream for the skin, and butter being their zinc gets oh. better. So. Sometimes, I, I, I do understand there are protocols around how much zinc to give and how much B6, and that's amazing. But please, please, please take it case by case. I.e., don't do a protocol. Of, yeah, well, you know, know, <laughs> I don't know believe your numbers. Them. Know your numbers, but know your patient yeah. and, and know that every patient's going to be different. And also go in gently like if you I'll tell you exactly what happens because I have lived it because when when I you know as a patient not as a clinician when I found out I had pyrrole disorder I went in really gung-ho with the zinc I was like yeah this is how much I need to take I've read about this let's go and I had I had copper dump and I'll tell you what you wouldn't wish a copper dump on your worst enemy especially if a person's already that pyrrole sort of picture of you know, anxious or mood instability or, you know, depression or whatever it is for them, if you then go and pump the zinc in at a really high level without first going gently um, and supporting healthy copper removal from the body, so making sure that you're getting that copper out and making sure you're working on the gut, making sure you're giving molybdenum or vitamin C or however it is you're deciding to get rid of that copper out of the body, um, if you go in gung-ho with the zinc, their copper is going to actually feel like it's going up because it, your copper sits in all – your, your body is st stashing copper. If you've got high copper, it's stashing it in all kinds of places in the body. And as soon as you pump the zinc in, and zinc copper sit on a seesaw, remember, mm. zinc goes up, copper has to come down. Everyone's like, yeah, copper's going to come down. Yeah, at first it gets dumped out into the bloodstream and it crosses the blood-brain barrier and your copper feels like it's going up. So feeling and what? Greater anxiety? Yeah, whatever your special blend of high copper symptoms were to uh, begin with, right. expect that to get worse. So if yours was getting angry at the drop of a hat, you know, now it's getting I violent. See. So if, you're, if your special blend of, co of copper symptoms was anxiety, well, now your anxiety might turn to a panic attack. Um, if your special blend of copper was something else entirely, maybe that will get worse too. So you have to be so careful to go in low and titrate up slowly rather than just go, this is the number we need to aim for and how quickly can we get there because only then are we going to get a result with that patient. They might not need that high amount 
like those numbers you were saying before are great. In, and I take I take really high numbers myself. Yeah. But oh my god, like I tried to go from zero to hero, and I suffered the consequences. And it was really lucky that I suffered those consequences because now I know not to do it to other people. So the caveat is gently, gently. Tie trade up, baby. Tie yeah. trade up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, let's go into more red flags and caveats, you know, because as you said, you've lived them. So, mm. you know, what do you know of from your experience and what do your patients report when, you know, people don't do things right? And then I guess we need to say, okay, well, how do you do things right in each situation? Yeah, and it might not be that the person's not, it's, it's not a case of not doing things right. I think it's just not having that flexibility or that curiosity around, okay, like how do I treat this person like a patient and not like a textbook? Uh, so, and sometimes there is trial and error. Like sometimes you give people what you think they need and they, they don't shift for a while. And you, like I said, then you might have to go, well, why aren't you absorbing your zinc or what's going on with your basics? But okay, so when people don't do things right, in inverted commas, um, usually one of two things will happen. Either the person will get worse or they won't get better or worse. They'll just nothing. That's so the worst spend the money thing. and nothing. I oh, know. That's <laughs> that's definitely the more frustrating mm. of the two. You don't know where uh, you are. Yeah, you're like, why is this not working? Uh, yeah, so sometimes people will come to me extremely confused as well in that they know what they've got but they've been taking the supplements and they're just like, I'm confused. I thought this was going to be the answer to everything. Mm. Why am I still anxious or why do I still have this thing? And it will turn out that they don't just have pyrrole disorder, they have pyrrole disorder and some other stuff going on because, remember, if the person's got pyrrole disorder, there's a high likelihood that they've also got some gut issues because there's a real chicken or the egg thing going on there in that the pyrrole disorder can cause the leaky gut because if you're low in zinc, you need zinc yep. to heal your gut. Yep. Um, and so pyrrole disorder can cause a leaky gut, but the leaky gut can cause an elevation in the pesky pyroles, and so you go round and round. And so are you treating pyrrole disorder or are you treating the person? So if you're just pumping in zinc and B6 and not healing the gut, well, chances are their anxiety might not get better because what if some of that anxiety is due to the gut dysfunction and not the pyrroles and the copper. Mm. So that's why I think sometimes people get the diagnosis, they take the pyrrole supplements and then they get frustrated because they thought it was going to be the answer to everything and it wasn't because that some, and some other symptoms or systems haven't been addressed. Another classic one is methylation. Like that's what often, that was my next question. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, all right, hit me with the question. Then. Well, well, the question was <laughs> okay. So, well, you've got the the poster child of SNP analysis, and that is methylation. You've got very similar symptoms with regards to pyrrole disorder or HPL, whatever you want to call it. So how do you differentiate? Um, do you do automatic testing to, to, to tease them apart and say, what have you got? Do you go on symptoms? How do you yeah. help these people? Well, it's, it's dead handy that the lab that I do a lot of my follow-up testing with happens to in this one profile where they do 
the copper, the zinc, the ceruloplasm and the free copper, they also happen to throw in a histamine <laughs> and a homocysteine. So often when you get that one test result back, I don't know if I'm allowed to mention brand names or companies, so that's why I'm being cagey. <laughs> so when I get this test back, it often gives me clues as to how they're methylating without having to do a full analysis of SNPs. Because remember, SNPs, SNPs don't tell us how a person's methylating. No, that's right. right? It tells I, the predisposition. It's a misconception. Yeah. And it happened to me again just the other week where I had a, a practitioner say to me, oh, so the person has this SNP, so I've given them, you know, the, the, uh, the supplements to help them to methylate better. So they're basically treating them like an undermethylator before testing for undermethylation. All they had to go on was the SNPs, and I'm like, okay, um, just because a person has an MTHFR SNP, for example, doesn't mean that they're undermethylating. Like if you give those supplements to someone who's overmethylating, you're going to have uh, some issues, mm. shall we say. So, yeah, so you can't just send someone off and ha have a look at all their SNPs and then know what to do. I think you still have to go back and look at how is the person methylating. So you can choose to do uh, a, hist a whole blood histamine, but, of course, that in itself is a whole other discussion because histamine oscillates from one end to the other like it varies from day to day like if I test my histamine five times in a week I'll get five different readings but again you can also look at the person's symptoms and see if that histamine is correlating with the symptoms you can make a more educated guess I don't usually if ever give methyls unless the person's homocysteine's elevated as well so just because someone's got a SNP or has got histamine issues doesn't mean you need to barge in with methyl folate or methyl B12 either, they might be fine and they might see improvement just on activated folate and activated B12. So I guess I, I keep coming back, to, you know, circling back to personalised care. <laughs> personalised care, have a look at what's sitting in, you know, who's sitting in front of you, not what's on the piece of paper, but definitely look at both and then figure out what to do when in doubt going gently. When in doubt, don't go straight. Yeah, actually, not even. Just don't go straight to methyls. Go through your activated bees first before you even look at whether they need methyls. Uh, I don't believe that looking at SNPs tells us what to do with a person. And if you really want to, there's. If you really don't trust histamine as a marker, don't you know, or don't want to figure it out that way, you can go to methylation profiles in, in labs. There's there's plenty of methylation profiles te uh, profile tests that you can do. There's SAMI-SAR ratio testing. There's all kinds of things that you can do, but you also have to work in with your client's budget. Yeah, so, yeah, that's uh, a big that's one. Always, especially if they've already come to you with pyrrole disorder and they've paid $110 for the pyrrole test and then they've paid $180 for that follow-up profile that does the zinc, the copper, the ceruloplasm and all of that. And then, so they've already spent a few hundred dollars and then you're like, hey, there's this SAMI-SAR ratio, but it costs $300. It's like, well, do you really need that or can we proceed without it? And, you know, I'm reminded when you're talking about SNPs, I'm reminded that something that uh, Ben Lynch said at the uh, Methylation and Genomics Summit um, run by Caroline Ladowski, it refreshed me, I've got to say. Ben Lynch made the caveat. He said, people keep looking at these methylation SNPs thinking there's, there's the answer. He said, look above. 
keep, look yes. up, look up, look, look, look further upstream. Look what's affecting those. Um, it was a really, it was a really interesting point. But the other, one, yeah. the other, the other part of it was dietary intervention. You know, that's where we got to start. So, what foods do we need to eat? What foods do you and others that you treat really need to watch out for? This one's a that this one's up for contention as well. Uh, a lot of people want to look at low copper diet, mm-hmm. and they. That that's a really tricky one because copper is in a lot of really nutritious foods. And if you go a low copper diet, you're removing some pretty key veggies, for example, right. out of that person's meal plan. So this is only I'm only using one approach and this is only like I can only speak for what I've seen work for myself and for my clients in clinic in that I will use a a leaky gut approach in that I will be like, right, get the gluten out, get the dairy out, uh, look at whether eggs are a problem or not, get the sugar out. Um, but, yeah, they're usually going gluten-free, dairy-free, sugar-free. If I suspect that there are other food intolerances, maybe eggs or you know nuts or something like that, we might do some food intolerance testing to pinpoint exactly what the best diet is for the person. But Apart from filtering the copper out of the tap water, which I think is really important, I don't remove copper from the diet in other places because it's, you know, the person's already going through a lot. Mm. Uh, You want their nervous system, their adrenals, you know, their hormones, everything to be supported with healthy, nutritious food. And if you start removing a lot of the high copper foods, like, is that going to be a long-term balanced diet? And also, you, you do need to be a little bit careful in that we don't necessarily want to drop the person's copper to the point where they have a deficiency either. Right. We definitely, if the copper's in excess, we want to get it down. But sometimes, I've seen it in a, in a lot of the, the cases that I've seen, it's not always copper that's the biggest problem. It's the lack of ceruloplasmin. And that's a whole other ball game. Like, yes, we need to support with zinc to keep that copper in check. But once you've brought that copper down to a point, their free copper might still be high because they don't have enough ceruloplasmin. And I was at um I was at a, a biobalance conference with um, Dr. Walsh a couple of years ago, yeah. which was very enlightening about the whole pyrol thing because um, Dr. William Walsh is like the granddaddy of pyrols. He's amazing. Yeah. Uh, and there was another doctor there, Dr. Judith Bowman from the Mensa Medical Clinic in the US, who'd also come out and was speaking. And she had the best analogy for ceruloplasmin, and it is. So imagine if your copper is the school kids and they're all standing at the bus stop. And because we know copper is a nutrient, right? So copper in very small amounts is a nutrient. You'll see it in multivitamins. Don't ever give those multis to pyrol people, by the way. Um, but you'll see it in multivitamins. So obviously you need some copper in order to make cells function well, right? This is accepted. But copper in large amounts acts like a neurotoxin and a heavy metal, so it needs to be kept in check. So imagine if your copper is the school children standing at the bus stop. They all need to be taken to the school where they're going to go and do the work, right? So, you know, and the school is the cells. So the school buses come along, which is the ceruloplasmin, and picks up all the school kids and takes them to the school, right? 
where they will no longer be causing any drama because they're at school, right, <laughs> unless they're hierarchy. Oh. Um, so if you don't have enough school buses but you've got too many school kids, you're going to have too much copper, not enough ceruloplasmin, right, so not enough school buses to transport the kids to the school, which means you're going to have kids left over at the bus stop. That's your free copper. And those leftover kids at the bus stop are the ones that are this Dr. Judith didn't say this, this is my own take on it. They're the ones that are going to stand around smoking cigarettes, drinking goon, and doing graffiti on the bus shelter, right? Because right, they're okay. bored. So so if your free copper is like those naughty kids that are standing around with nothing to do, so they're gonna cause trouble. If you had more school buses, you could get them all to the school, right? And so you need to build up your ceruloplasmin to deal with your free copper. And you know what? You know when ceruloplasmin is at its lowest? When you've got adrenal problems and stress because, like my adrenal dysfunction people, they're the ones with the low ceruloplasmin. And, again, it's like this this crazy snowball effect of if you've got pyrrole disorder, you're going to be more likely to be sensitive to stress and trauma in your life. If you're stressed and tra- if you're stressed and experiencing trauma, you will create more pyrroles. If you create more pyrroles, you're going to be more sensitive to stress and trauma. So then, it, what's going to happen is, of course, that's going to lead to adrenal dysfunction because all that stress and trauma. What's it going to do? It's going to disrupt your cortisol, right? So now we've got this adrenal dysfunction. So you've just got a quandary. You've got a spiraling. Right, and your adrenal dysfunction is causing you to not make enough ceruloplasmin, a.k.a. the school buses, and then you've got more free copper, and more free copper makes you feel like you're going crazy. If you feel like you're going crazy, you're going to be more susceptible to trauma and stress. <laughs> and so it's no wonder that one of the key symptoms of pyral disorder is overwhelm. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, yeah, we have to work on, on supporting the adrenal system and, and getting that transportation system working as well. So then it comes back to this, you know, sort of, um, you know, mindfulness support again. Mindfulness support, adrenal support, giving people ways to deal with stress, removing the load from, you know, taking something off your plate, saying yeah. no to things, don't serve you, all that fun stuff. Yeah. Now, you were mentioning pyrrol research, you know, it's lots of contention, but finally the conversations are being had, they're being made. So what do you think or where are we headed with regards to pyrrol research in the next few years? Uh, I would love those numbers to be set more in, not like it's not set in stone, nothing should be ever set in stone, but I would love everyone to come to an agreement on what is borderline pyrrole disorder, what is pyrrole disorder, and get all the labs to agree as well because, like I said, different labs have got different numbers on their reports. Uh, So it's very confusing for people. Uh, I would like us to get to a point where pyrrole disorder is being more widely recognised by the medical profession out there because at the moment I'm finding it challenging to work in with some doctors. Some doctors really get it. Some doctors just don't want to recognise it whatsoever. So it would be nice if we could all start to come to an agreement there as well. Uh, I think we're going to hopefully start to work out which genes or which gene SNPs are involved. That would be amazing. I know there are a lot of people looking at the CBS genes as being potentially an area of research. Uh, I would love 
for uh, you know the research to go ahead, you know, to research to forge ahead on different types of zinc because you know everyone seems to be recommending different kinds of zinc. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and everybody says theirs is the best. <laughs> right, but maybe they all work. <laughs> revelation. Yeah, revelation. Um, <laughs> they all work. Everyone keep doing what you're doing. But yeah. Do you think that pyrrole yeah. disorder, or I'm going to say it, I'm going to say it once too, okay? Hydroxyhemopyrrolin 2 1. Okay, HPL. <laughs> I did it. I did yeah. it. Yeah, you okay. did. <laughs> so do you think that HPL might hold the answer for a lot of food sensitivities in the future? Yeah, there might be research that comes out to reflect that. But like I said, it's that leaky gut, zinc deficiency, pyrrole loop that people get stuck in that mm. is, uh, if it, you know, if the lack of zinc is increasing the leaky gut. So I don't think it's a HPL that's causing the food intolerance, but I think it's definitely doing something to the gut lining via the, that lack of zinc. Yeah. Uh, what I would love to see is more research around uh, the pyrrole disorder and its effect on moods and also on certain uh, you know certain health conditions that we see like ADD ADHD yeah. um, there's I would love to see more research around pyrrole disorder and uh, autism spectrum disorders that is a thing hmm. um, and you know like I said earlier I see a lot of mums with pyrrole disorder and what do you know a lot of them seem to have kids on the spectrum or kids with special needs. So I think that that solving some of that in the kids is going to help to take the stress off the mums as well. If if we get some of these kids healthier, then some of these mums are less likely to burn out and then need a naturopath as well. Uh, I'd love to see more information and more research around pyrrole disorder and the physical issues. I think that's something that hasn't been touched on a lot yet, but Joint pain, you know, popping and cracking of joints, joint degradation, collagen issues, back pain, neck pain. A lot of that comes down to low zinc, high copper as well. I'd love to see more information around inflammation and Mm. inflammatory disorders. And Mm. I do see a lot of pyrrole disorder being linked in with autoimmune conditions. A lot of my pyrrole people have autoimmune stuff. There's a, a lot of my pyrrole people have got Hashimoto's. So, I'd love to see just more links being made between pyrrole disorder and those health conditions because then when someone fronts up with Hashimoto's or someone fronts up with ADHD, everyone knows to go check the pyrroles and check the zinc and check the copper as like a bog standard, you know, part of the protocol. Um, so where can we find out more, Jules? You, you were mentioning um, Bill Walsh and, and I've already taken down, I think there was um, discerning the Mo factor part one and part two. They were by McGuinness yep. and Walsh et al. Um, any others, any other really premier um, research articles or even books that we can really learn from? Yeah, if you've, if you've got a, a large supply of coffee and really good <laughs> yeah. uh, attention span, go and get Bill Walsh's Nutrient Power book and just immerse yourself in that for a few days. Gotcha. Or if you're like me and you don't have an attention span, hello, Pyrols, uh, <laughs> set aside a few months. Um, but I don't think that book's a be and end-all because I think there's more research in different areas that has come out since then, especially around symptoms of under- and over-methylation. Yeah. Um, Mensa Medical, um, Albert Mensa, who you know, was out recently, um, who had, you know, who had a lot to say about pyrols as well. Yeah. Uh, yeah, he, his work's really amazing. What Judith a great Bowman, guy. The, yeah, right. He, he was such you know, a lovely gentleman. 
Oh my goodness. I, I've interviewed him for my own podcast and oh my Lord, I nearly cried. Like he's so heartfelt and, yeah. and intelligent. I could talk about that for days. Um, but Judith Bowman was, you know, one of his doctors from the same place that was talking about the school buses. So yeah. they, they're really good at explaining things in a layperson way. They do use the Walsh protocols and they work very closely with Walsh still. Um, closer to home, Trudy Scott, um, Trudy, if you're listening, we need to chat. You're amazing. Um, She's <laughs> awesome. Hook a sister up. Um, I, I keep meaning to run into her, and um, and I know that day will come. I, I think she is amazing in what she does, and she talks about this stuff both from a technical perspective and a layperson perspective extremely well. Um, and I do find that a lot of her information is on point and very, very thoroughly researched. Um, who else is good? Even like some of the um, the Mind Forum people, they've got articles on parole disorder. But I read some of this stuff recently and I think they're just, you know, I think they've been reading Trudy Scott stuff. So, hey, cut to the chase and just go straight to Trudy. Um, Tr- Trudy's presented for Mind. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Well, there you go. There, there's, there's the link. Um, look, there, there's a lot of parole forums out there on Facebook do not bother. Give it a wide berth. It, it's there's so many people in there self-prescribing. It just hurts my brain. Yeah. I went in there just to get you know, as in a inverted commas, get to know my client in general kind of exercise. In that, I joined those forums so I could see what people were talking about and what problems they had, so that I knew what people needed. And all I saw was people going. How much think are you taking? Where did you get that from? And I heard, okay, how much should I take? And I'm like, oh, everybody stop because like they're all just copying each other's protocols and it was it hurt my brain. So yeah, please try not to go on there because it it will you'll never get that time back. There'll be years of your life you never get back. Um, I actually do mentoring with uh, practitioners, so. You can actually just book a mentoring session with me. I prefer to do it one-on-one with practitioners if they want to bring case studies or learn about it in general because, like I said, um, every single patient is different. So if we're doing mentoring with case studies, every single case study is going to be different and I think you learn just by seeing clients and working out what each one needs. So, yeah, if you if you need me, contact me. I, I don't put stuff – the stuff I put up on my website – my website is geared more towards patients than practitioners because the mentoring that I do is only a very small part of my practice and, you know, 95% of what I do is seeing patients. Yeah. And uh, so the pyrrole stuff that I've got on my website is more for people to read about so that they can figure out whether they need to take the next step and get tested. And, you know, they're basically looking at lists of symptoms and a bit of my story about how I personally felt when I had it so they can go, oh, my goodness, that resonates with me. It's like she's in my head. She knows me. These are all my symptoms. Maybe this is the answer. Maybe I need to get a test. Right. So, yeah, but it is a good place if, you, if, if you're just starting out or if you need to send a client there, you know, to my website to, you know, to look at things from a layperson's perspective, like that's what it's there for. Cool. Jules Galloway, thank you so much. This is still a quandary. I mean, there's uh, so much to learn. As you say, we're right on the edge of, of really discovering so much about pyrrole disorder or hydroxyhemopyrrolin 21HPL. Thanks so much, though, for taking us through some important parts of it today. It's awesome. No worries at all. Thank you for having me. This is FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook.
If you're a regular visitor to the FX Medicine website, you would have seen many of our great infographics. These are all now available for use in your clinic. You can download them for free. And the high-resolution versions are available for purchase as A3 or A2 posters or as a digital file. Simply click on the button beneath your favourite infographics at fxmedicine.com.au.